Welcome to Reveal Truth, the audio outreach ministry of Moores Creek Baptist Church. I am Pastor Roger Barnes, and I invite you now to join me as we open the Bible, God's Revealed Truth. If you're visiting with us, we've been in the book of Ephesians now for about uh, 15 months, I guess it is, 15 months. We've worked all the way to chapter 4, now we're hit about the third or fourth word in chapter 4, and we've been stuck in these first few uh, words of this uh, second verse here for a few weeks and we've been talking about if you remember some weeks past the very first word lowliness was actually better translated humbleness or humility and we talked about humility up against pride which is its its reverse side of the coin so to speak and and how you had to even come to Jesus in humbleness humility you had to admit to even be saved that you were not worthy and could not save yourself you had to divulge yourself of all that you were and accept all that he was and is to even become a part of the family we talked about that humility we said out of humility comes this second word in the most english bibles is translated gentleness a better translation of that would be the word meekness or to be meek. And we talked about it uh, last week to some extent about what it meant to be meek. And we worked our way through and I said as we closed that, that there was a, a definition there of, of meekness that I like to use and I like to um, have in my heart and my mind to think about what meekness really is. And that definition is power under control. Power under control. I gave you the example last week of, of a lion and a, and a lion tamer. A lion, even though he's wild, can be tamed to, to get along with humans and other people. And, and you even see them at circuses or shows where uh, they'll be in a cage with a man and he'll be wearing a, a pouch on his side full of meat that the, the animal likes or treats. And, and he'll walk up and have the animal do a trick and he'll reach into the pouch and take out one treat and give to, to that lion. He'll even sometimes hold his mouth open and stick his head inside of his mouth. And, and he'll do things with that lion that, that I wouldn't dare try either with that lion line or any line I bumped into in the yard um, but there's a, there's this this cohesion this bond between the two all the power that's ever been in that animal all its claws its strength its desires are still there but they fall under the control of that line tamer so to speak Many of you ride horses and deal with horses, and I think you could, you could say, especially if any of you have ever had a horse that's never been ridden, there's a process in getting these horses to first love you and, and trust you to be able to place a saddle upon that horse's back and climb on and ride. That horse, at some point in time, if you work with it long enough, will become familiar with you enough and trust you enough that you're able to take this wild horse that is born to run And you're able to place a saddle on its back and walk this horse. And when you need to go faster, you're able to give it a signal, a sign, and it run faster. You're able with just two small leather straps to be able to turn this horse. Some horses are trained so well, they actually respond to knees being touched to their side as to know where to go. Don't know if you've ever watched any of those uh, shows on TV. I love there's there's, uh, a type of riding, I'm not even sure what it's called, but where they actually have a horse and a a person and there's music that plays and the horse actually goes into an arena and responds to a rider. And most times the rider is riding reinless. Everything that horse responds to is either verbally or by touch through the lower body of the rider. It's amazing to think this horse that is built to run and, and just run wild can be trained can be tamed can be loved in such a way that it will respond to these gentle touches and voice commands 
All the power that is in that horse, its strength and its might is still there. Yet it falls under the control of sometimes very small people. Have you ever looked at the ones that run like the Kentucky Derby? You don't see folks my size on the horse. There's a reason. No matter how fast the horse runs, you put me up on him and we just slowed him down a notch or two. You take a little fella and you stick him up there, the horse hardly even knows he's there. Yet when you compare the size of that horse to that rider that's in control, sometimes it's amazing to stop and think that that little stature of a person can control that massive animal with all that power. When I think of meekness, that's what I think of. Because biblical meekness is this power under control. It is not that, as I said last week, that Casper Milk Toast person that lets everyone walk all over them and always, and always just lays down to every rule. That's not the picture we're given in Scripture. As a matter of fact, power under control can actually mean a couple of different things. We'll look at some examples this morning. The first thing that I think power under control means is that you overlook wrongs that are done to you so that God can be glorified. See, we as Christians, when we understand that there's this power within us that's under the control of this this Lord, this Savior who took over our life because we had kind of run our life into the ground, we had kind of chosen to do things that had separated us from God. We have made a mess of our life. And in steps this Savior, this Jesus. God calls Him to you and He he makes you in right standing, righteous with Him through the death, burial, and resurrection of His only begotten Son, Jesus Christ. He raises Him through the dead, from the dead so that He can fill you with the power. We know that He said whenever He left this earth, He was going to send another that would be just like Him but would have a different ministry. And that power came, and His name was the Holy Spirit, the third part of the Trinity. And He filled us with this power, the same power that Jesus, our Savior, had. And, and there's this power that we have, but under the control of God, it's like that horse that has desire, that has the power to run wide open, but there's times when He must trot. There's times when He must walk. There's times maybe even when He's... Hits to a wagon and must pull the wagon. And this power under control sometimes means that we have to overlook wrongdoing to us so that God can be glorified. What's a great example of that? Flip back with me to the Old Testament. We're going to use some scriptures this morning you may not be familiar with, but flip back to Numbers with me. If you happen to be visiting with us this morning, we normally have a pretty good exercise in the use of the Bible on Sunday mornings. That's... uh, The way I prefer to preach is let the Bible speak for itself. It doesn't need any of my interjection. It doesn't need stories from me. It just needs to be explained to you and opened up for you, and God will speak to your heart. So this morning, let's look at Numbers chapter 12. Let's look at this character that we're very familiar with. His name is Moses. Moses. When you think about Moses, you think about a whole bunch of the Old Testament. You think about a lot of great things that were done. But here's a little story that I'm not sure that you may have ever noticed. Let's look together at Numbers chapter 12, starting in verse 1. We'll read down through a few verses and make some comments on it about this idea of overlooking wrongs done to you for the glory of God. In verse 1 it says, Then Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Ethiopian woman whom he had married, for he had married an Ethiopian woman. Now who was this uh, Miriam and Aaron? This Miriam and Aaron were Moses' kinfolk. (laughs) They were family. They were family, and they spoke up because he had married this Ethiopian woman. What's wrong with this picture? 
See, this Ethiopian woman wasn't one of them. It wasn't one of the Jews. It was an outsider. How dare Moses? Moses, you're going to go marry this outsider? Can you just hear him? Can you hear him around the table at Thanksgiving? They're just wearing him out. Well, it goes on to say in verse 2, so they said, Has the Lord indeed only spoken through Moses? Oh, look at the card they're getting ready to play. They're getting ready to play the Jesus card. <laughs> you ever come up to somebody and said, The Lord gave me a word for you. <laughs> you know what I told you I do when you tell me that, right? I ask for a chapter and verse, and if you can't give it to me, I run. Because he's given me everything he wants me to know between the covers of this. If he spoke something to you outside of the covers of this, I either misunderstood or he lied to me. And uh, I'm going to vacate the premises. But they come up to him and they said, Has indeed the Lord uh, only spoken through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? So now look at what they're doing. They got this mighty Moses and to get into the argument with him, they're going to try to get on level playing field. Say, Moses, okay, God speaks to you, but only through you? Maybe he spoke through us too. So they said, and, and it says, and the Lord heard it. So it says that all this conversation went on, the Lord heard. Now look in verse 3. Now the man Moses was very humble, more than all men who were on the face of the earth. Believe it or not, that word there for humble is that word for meekness that we're using now. He goes on to say, suddenly the Lord said to Moses, Aaron, and Miriam, Come out, you three, to the tabernacle of meeting. So he called them out of the, the, the populace, out to this tabernacle of meeting, where they would gather together with him. And it said, So the three came out. Then the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud and stood in the door of the tabernacle and called Aaron and Miriam. Could you imagine their knees knocking together? Could you imagine them suddenly running through their minds trying to think, What have we done? Either we've done something wrong or, in fact... God is about to speak to us and through us. They're in their mind playing this mental ping pong. God takes care of that pretty quickly because it says, and they both went forward. Then he said, hear now my words. This is God speaking. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak to him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. I speak to him. Face to face. Is that not a remarkable thing to be said about Moses? He says if there's just an ordinary prophet, which is pretty strong, <laughs> if there's just one who's going to speak for me, who's going to be my vocal cords, my mouth on this earth, I'm going to speak to him in a vision and a dream. But this Moses, <laughs> I speak to him face to face. He says, even plainly and not in the dark sayings, he says, not only do I speak to him face to face, I don't do it in riddles, I don't do it in stories, I just tell him the truth. And he sees from the form of the Lord, and when they were, and, and then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? He says, you say that you're a prophet, and you're comparing yourself to this Moses, this meek, humble Moses. I so trust in Moses, have put so much faith and bearing upon Moses that I speak to him face to face, not in riddles, not in dreams, but face to face. And you dare to say something about Moses? I find it interesting that he says that, and he moves on. And it says in verse 9, So the anger of the Lord was aroused against them, 
and he left. One of the worst things that I ever see in the Bible is when God is face to face with someone and he departs. He leaves them. Remember the church. Ichabod written over the door. He has left. I just think about that whenever I read that. He goes on to verse 10. And when the cloud departed from above the tabernacle, suddenly Miriam became leprous, as white as snow. Then Aaron turned towards Miriam, and there she was, a leper. Look what happened. <laughs> Look what happened. It says in verse 11, So Aaron said to Moses, Now suddenly, Miriam and Aaron don't have themselves on equal playing ground with Moses. Because look what Aaron does when something happens to Miriam. And Aaron said to Moses, Oh, my Lord, please do not lay this sin on us in which, you have, in which we have done so foolishly and in which we have sinned. Please do not let her be as one dead whose flesh is half consumed when, she comes, when he comes out of his mother's womb. So suddenly now, instead of wanting to tell Moses what to do, <laughs> they're begging him for his help. So do you see how they have been wrong against Moses? They've been speaking out, obviously, that Moses was wrong in the sayings. They possibly hadn't heard the Lord correctly, that they knew as much as Moses did. Yet here in a time of need, they turned to Moses. Here's meekness in action. Look at verse 13. So Moses cried out to the Lord, saying, Please heal her, O God, I pray. <laughs> that person that is not meek, yet vengeful, which is the opposite of meekness, probably wouldn't have asked the Lord to heal her. Probably would have said, Lord, thank you for giving her what she so deserved at this humble moment in her life. We'd have tried to make it religious. We'd have tried to make it sound like we were in agreement with what God had done. But in our heart, if we weren't meek, if we were vengeful, we'd have loved every minute of it. Yet look at Moses. Did he have a right to turn his back and walk away? I think so. God did. God had delved out justice in the case, and Moses had every right to walk away. Yet Moses stopped with those that had been ridiculing him and said, God, heal her. What an awesome picture of meekness at work. I also think about another character, David. Flip over to Samuel while we're here, 1 Samuel, while we're in the Old Testament. Moses was a Awesome man of the Bible, very meek. Led the children of Israel, if you remember, out of the wilderness. He did all those great things. And we've seen one picture of his meekness. There are many more. But then there's this fellow over in 1 Samuel that I find to be an interesting character. It's the man that I mentioned earlier as we were talking. It's the man that God said was after his own heart. It's this gentleman by the name of David, King David. We see there in 1 Samuel verse, uh, chapter 24... 1 Samuel verse 24, a picture into to David's life. Keep in mind, David has been chosen to be the next king. From the time he was small, he's been chosen to be the next leader. Yet if you remember, there was this leader that was on the throne by the name of Saul that didn't take too kindly to this David because he saw in his mind this replacement he saw in his mind this one that was coming to take his prominent place. He had, by the point of this story we're going to read, had already chased David basically to the ends of the earth. He had pursued him with his armies. He had chased him trying to kill him. He had even used his own son, Saul had, to, to get at David. He had, he had tried every tactic he could think of to pin David down so that he could kill him. 
to keep him from taking over the throne. Then we run across this story here in the 24th chapter of 1 Samuel. And it says this, Now it happened when Saul had returned from following the Philistines that it was told to him. Now why did he follow the Philistines? The Philistines happened to be a war that they need to stop and engage in. He stopped me, he chased these Philistines, and he fought with them. And as soon as that was over, he comes back, and this was told to him. Take note. David is in the wilderness of Engadai. David is hanging out in the wilderness. Now, here comes the armies back. Here comes Saul back. They've been chasing the Philistines and fighting, and there awaits this message. This David is in the wilderness of Engadai. So it says in verse 2, Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men from all of Israel and went to seek David and his men on the rocks of the wild goats. So do you get this picture? First off, there's nowhere near 3,000 men in David's army. <laughs> there's not even a tenth of those men in David's army. Yet Saul gathers up 3,000 men and he goes to attack. It specifically tells, him, tells us that he's on this place called rocks of the wild goats so you get this picture of wilderness you get this picture of all this rocky terrain i kind of see these hills that are just covered in rocks and it goes on to say so he came to the sheepfolds by the road that's where they would stop and rest those sheep as they were traversing the area it says where there was a cave so now we see this cave we see that David's out with his few men. Saul's out with his abundance of men chasing him. And we run across this cave. So it says, and Saul went in to attend to his needs. There's been great argument over what those needs are. They didn't really have rest stops with restrooms along that time. That could have been a possibility. Also, it could have been that they were wearied. And instead of sleeping outside in the sheepfold, Saul, the king, was going to take rest in the cool cave. But whatever his need at that moment was, he steps into this cave to attend to it. There's a footnote, I hope, in your Bible there, and it says, David and his men were staying in the recesses of the cave. So you get the picture? Here's Saul, thousands of men outside. He spots a cave. He tells them, wait, I'm going to go in and attend to my business, probably going into rest. He slips into a cave, and there in the back of that cave, unbeknownst to him, is David and all of his men. <laughs> coincidence i don't think so god divine i believe so saul goes in he takes care of his business and there hides david you see the picture here's how it goes on then in verse four then the men of david said to him and you can imagine in hushed tones they said this is the day of which the lord said to you behold i will deliver your enemy into your hand that you may do to him as it seems good to you See the advice that David's got? Here's this guy that's been chasing him all over the region with one thing in mind, killing him. One purpose, one desire, so much that after coming back from a big battle with the Philistines, he immediately pursues David again. So hung up on the murder of David that he doesn't even take time to recover from the battle. Off they go. And here, David's in the back of this cave, and in walks the man that's trying to kill him. Apparently, Saul has no idea that David's there. David's men lean over to him in their good godly wisdom and said, God told you you're going to have a chance. Here it is. Go get him. David, in all rights, was the next king. 
How did most kings assume the throne? Murder the one that was on it. According to the customs and law of the time, would David have been right to run him through with a spear? Probably. Maybe even in God's eyes. If what his men said were true. But is that truly what God had told him to do? We'll find out in a second. But here's David with the opportunity of a lifetime because his life was on the line. His enemy was there. He had an opportunity to avenge how he'd been treated. And it says there, the end of verse 4, And David arose and secretly cut off a corner of Saul's robe. (laughs) Instead of killing him, David slips in, probably as Saul was asleep. He reaches in on that robe that showed Saul's royalty, that robe that was so important to who he was and his position. He reaches into the corner of that robe with his knife and slices off the corner and leaves. Do you see the picture? He had the opportunity to kill him. He had the opportunity to end what is the worst thing that was happening to him at the moment. He had the opportunity to avenge all those things that Saul had said about him, all those people that he had used against him, all those lies, all those times that he had tried to kill him. He had the opportunity to end it. He even had the power to do it. We know he must have had something sharp with him. He cut the corner off of the robe. He was armed. He had everything he needed to kill him, and he just clipped off the corner. Let's see if we can tell why he didn't kill him. He goes on to say in verse 5, Now it happened afterwards that David's heart was troubled because he had cut Saul's robe. See, David so understood that who was in control that he realized even after just simply cutting the corner off his robe, he had stepped out from under the lordship of God and taken things into his own hands. He understood that he had, in fact, not followed God's leadership. Yes, they were there for a divine appointment, but a divine appointment was to teach David a lesson, not Saul. And see, in meekness, David had not used the power that was within him to murder or avenge, and even the vengeance that he showed in cutting off the corner of his robe troubled his heart. Do you see that picture of meekness? You know, we are to be meek also in our lives. Let's look at the one example of meekness that fits the closest to us so that we can understand what it means to have this power and that power to be so under control that we do not avenge those things that are done to us. Look over in Matthew with me, Matthew chapter 11. Let's look at the picture of meekness for us now that we've looked at two Old Testament examples. In Matthew chapter 11, in verse 29, there is this one verse that should put it into perspective for you. It says in verse 29 of chapter 11 of Matthew, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. So here's Jesus saying, Take my yoke, put it upon you, and you're going to learn something from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That word there that is translated gentle is the exact same word, proetos, that's translated meek. Jesus himself says to us, you're going to learn from me and what are you going to learn? 
that I am meek and humble in heart. What an awesome thought. We go on with Matthew, flip over to 21, and let's look at this meekness in play. Let's look at this meekness as it works through his life. In chapter 21, verse 4, just going to read these in short and not give you the whole story because obviously we're quickly running out of time. But it says in chapter 21, verse 4, this is Jesus in the triumphal entry, and it says this, All this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet. Now, what are all these things that are done? The disciples are sent there to find this donkey. They gather this donkey, a colt. They, they put Jesus on it. They, they go into the streets. In other, uh, in other gospels, you see where they're celebrating with palm branches, singing out, Hosanna. He's entered, and it says, And all those things are done that it might be fulfilled, which spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming, lowly or meek. And sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. So what did the Old Testament prophets say would happen that lived out in the life of Jesus? His meekness showed up when he entered as king. Is that not a funny contrast to you? He's king. King means everything is his. King means he has all power to rule over everything. Yet what does it say he is? Meek. See, he is filled with all power, yet is under the control of his heavenly Father. In Matthew chapter 26, he gives us another example. This is probably my favorite example of Jesus and his meekness. Matthew 26, down in verse 50 Actually, I'll get us to run and start in verse 47. Verse 47 of Matthew 26 reads like this. And while he was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the twelve, with a great multitude with swords and clubs, came from the chief priests and elders of the people. So here's Jesus. We know that Jesus is, is there alone with just a couple of friends. He's not there with a great mob. He has no army with him. He's in the garden. Judas, one who had been with him and betrayed him, had gone and sold him out. With him coming back came the army, armed to the teeth, carrying torches, swords, clubs, to get this Jesus we just read about that was meek and rode in on a coat. (laughs) Here they come back after him. Look what it says, verse 48. Now his betrayer had given them a sign saying, Whoever I kiss, he is is the one. Seize him. Immediately he went up to Jesus and said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. Look how Jesus responds. Jesus says to him, Friend, why have you come? Was that because Jesus didn't know? He knew why he was there. He wanted him to confess it himself. He says, Why have you come? Then they came and laid hands on Jesus and they took him. And suddenly one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand, drew his sword, struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Who is the one that drew his sword? He had a mouth shaped like a foot. Do you remember the guy? (laughs) Peter. Peter. He was much like myself in some aspects. Not that I'd have drawn a sword and hacked off the guy's ear. 
But a lot of times my mouth goes in gear way ahead of my brain is what my wife says. Sometimes I need to stop and let my brain get ahead of my mouth so the right thing comes out. Peter, in this instance, needed to stop, (laughs) put on the brakes and see how Jesus responded. Yet he didn't. He yanks out his sword and he whacks off this guy's ear. Now, either he was just trying to scare him or he was a real bad swordsman. Because I would have went for the neck myself, just my thought. But he whacks off his ear. Now, look what Jesus said, verse 52. But Jesus said to him, Put your sword in its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. That came to live out in Peter's life later, didn't it? It says, Or do you think that I cannot pray to my Father, and he will provide me with more than 12 legions of angels? How many angels is 12 legions? Any idea? Somewhere in the neighborhood of 72,000 angels. Do you remember a story of any angel showing up in the Old Testament on his own and slaying hundreds, thousands of people? One angel? Do you think 72,000 could have taken care of the mob? Do you see what Jesus is saying to him? I have the power. (laughs) I have the power to fix this situation with one word. I have within me all that it takes to solve the problem that you see. But look what he said. He says, How then could the Scriptures be fulfilled that it must happen thus? You know what Jesus is saying to Peter? He's saying, Within me is all the power. The power that is held in 72,000 angels is at my command. At any moment I can request them, and they're here. They will do as I say. Yet he says, I won't do that. And why? Because God's word must be fulfilled. It mattered not what they were about to do to him. What was important to Jesus was that God be glorified. You see, meekness is the power to remedy the situation. But the control of a father that does it in his time. Because Jesus did remedy the situation. He did it with his arms stretched out and a spear driven through his side. That's how he fixed it. See, because had he had chosen to call the 72,000 angels, we wouldn't be here today as brothers and sisters in Christ. He knew that even though all that power was contained, that there was one greater than him that was in control. The beautiful, beautiful picture of meekness. He tells us in Isaiah 53, 7. I'm just going to quote a couple of these for you. Isaiah 53, 7 says, He was oppressed and afflicted, and yet he opened not his mouth. He was actually led as a sheep to slaughter, yet was quiet. Over in Luke 23, he does this beautiful thing. Luke 23, 34 It says, Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. See, even as he was hanging upon this cross, having been beaten beyond recognition, having nails driven through his hands and his feet, having a crown shoved on his head so hard that the blood poured from his body, even as he hung there and the murderers, physical murderers, were standing at his feet, what did he say? 
forgive them. They have no idea what they've done. This, the same man that could have called 72,000 angels to knock out the ones that were coming to take him, he still had the power while nailed to the cross to remedy that situation. Yet his heart, under the control of the Father, thought of those that were standing at the foot of the cross. He said, forgive them. It goes on in the 43rd verse of that exact same chapter. The 43rd verse, and he says, as these two thieves were hanging on either side, one thief was ridiculing Jesus, saying, if you're as powerful as you think you are, why don't you just get us all down? If you are who you said that you are, free us, show us. If you really are God, handle it. The thief on the opposite side said, what? Remember me today. Remember me today. And Jesus in the 43rd verse said, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. The thing I find amazing about Jesus' meekness is his ability that even while under great physical pain, great physical suffering, even those denying that he was the God that he knew that he was, within his heart, because of meekness, he had complete control over that vengeance that, to me, was completely justifiable. To me, as God, if you deny God, he has every right in the world to deny you. If you choose to say that you are a greater God than him and you don't need him, in my mind, God has the right to say, okay, and walk off. Yet he didn't. Because, see, each of us, the Bible says, have sinned and come short of the glory of God. you know what sin is? You and me saying we know better than him. Each of us have looked into the face of God and said, you may call yourself God, but I'm God over my life. How did we do it? We chose to do that which he said we shouldn't, that which separates us from him, that which denies his love. We've each chosen to be our own God. Had I been God, I'd have left you to it. I'd have never hung my son upon a cross for your decisions. Thank God I'm not God. Because what he did is he said, even though you want to be God of your own life, even though you want to deny me, I still love you. And I love you enough that I'm going to hang my only begotten son upon a cross for your sins. And he's going to show you what humility is. He's going to show you meekness. And those who receive that are commanded to follow his example. You see, he had all the power within him. Yet out of him flowed compassion. Compassion and love. So this morning is, I extend the invitation to you. And we'll finish this message next week. We'll look at that power that's within us and how it comes forth to, to defend the honor of God. But this morning as you think about your life, I ask you a very simple question. First and foremost, have you ever received that free gift given to you out of humbleness and meekness by a Savior that was full of all the power that's ever been placed in this world? Have you ever received His love?
does it show in your life? You see, just simple to, simply the wear the name of Christian changes nothing. I think you can look around our world today. You can see those in our televisions, our newspapers, on the internet, that stand up and say, I'm a Christian, but I believe it should be like this. I'm a Christian, but I'm okay with that. I'm a Christian, but God loves everybody, so we'll, we'll let that slide. Wearing the name of a Christian doesn't change your destiny. You can call yourself a Christian all day long and wind up in the most evil place that's ever been created, and it's a place called hell. Because to label yourself doesn't change who you are on the inside. To not stand by the truth of the Word proves you don't know the Lord of the Word. It's my desire that everyone come to know Christ. It's also my understanding that not everyone's going to choose to do that. It doesn't change my love for that person. It also doesn't change my hate and disdain for their sin. Because I hate those things that God hates. God says He hates those sins. Maybe this morning you've been wearing that label of Christ, but if you look at your life, you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that humility and meekness are not two items that would be used to describe your life. I ask you to stop. Stop and say, do I really, really have a relationship with this man named Jesus? Have I just learned the stories? Am I able just to recite the verses? Have I just walked an aisle and been baptized? Have I just participated in all the things without the things changing me? You see, to have your name on a roll makes nothing but you're a member of a social club. To have your life covered in the blood of Jesus makes you family. Thank you for joining us here at Revealed Truth. I would like to personally invite you to visit with us at Morris Creek Baptist Church. We're located at 3107 Union Chapel Road in Curry, North Carolina. Our Sunday school starts at 10 o'clock on Sunday mornings and is followed at 11 o'clock with our Sunday morning worship service. We also have a time of prayer and Bible study on Wednesday evenings at 7 o'clock. We look forward to seeing you soon.